0: Okay, welcome to day 178 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 18, verse 17 through the end of chapter 19, as well as Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through chapter 18, verse 8. So in 1 Kings, we've seen how Elijah the prophet has now returned to the land of Israel And it's in um, the midst of a famine that he had predicted, right, that he had declared by word of the Lord would come upon the land because they had um, officially the king, Ahab, and his queen Jezebel had... replaced worship of Yahweh with worship of Baal in the land. And in fact, uh, we even get the hint that there's um, an effort, a conscious effort, to eradicate Yahweh worship. Um, you can see this by the way in which the prophets are apparently treated. Recall how yesterday uh, Obadiah, the guy whom Elijah met coming back into the land, had had to hide the prophets from, in caves from uh, Jezebel. And so um, uh, this guy, Obadiah, who is a very high-ranking official under King Ahab, he is the uh, Asher al habayat he who is over the household, he has now brought Ahab to Elijah. And the first thing Ahab says to him is, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Um, Which, of course, is quite ironic, because the whole reason Israel is in this situation is because of Ahab's policy in listening to his wife um, and making accommodations to her. He has forsaken the Lord and has given his entire land over to idolatry. So who is the real troubler of Israel? It is Ahab and his queen Jezebel. Uh, This, of course, is kind of something that happens often with sin, where um, where our sin will bring dire consequences in our lives and will lash out at uh, maybe godly truth or godly individuals in our lives um, or the Lord himself as if he's doing something uh, wrong and is the source of our troubles, when in fact it is our sin and rebellion that is. And Elijah couldn't make this more clear. His answer to him is, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Um, And then um, Elijah tells him, go and gather, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, um, and including, the he singles out, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the four hundred prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is they—they uh, they are regarded very highly by Jezebel. They're—they're uh, they're not just there hanging out, but she's actually sponsoring them in some sense. Uh, the eating of at the king's table, uh, we've seen, is is a big deal. Um, now. Um, Interestingly, Ahab then goes and does exactly this, right? Elijah said, send and gather. And so verse 20, so Ahab sent and gathered, which is interesting in and of itself, because who's supposed to be king here? Who's supposed to be the one calling the shots and ordering people around? Well, you'd think it would be Ahab, right? But no, Elijah is actually ordering him around. And this is characteristic of Ahab's um, characterization in the narrative that he Tends to be quite a passive king, where he's not going to act uh, on his own. He needs someone else to kind of hold his hand, and and this is just part and parcel, it seems, with that. And so he does this. He brings all of these prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah comes and he challenges all the people. So, possibly including the prophets there, but clearly um, to the audience who, in uh, verse nineteen, is called all Israel. Um, the the others standing there. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Um, if Yahweh is God, follow him. And but if Baal, then follow him. Uh, a searing indictment against uh, spiritual lethargy or spiritual indecisiveness. Um, this is convicting to me in my struggles with sin. Uh, right? Like, are you going to follow the Lord or not? And it's interesting that he even uses this verb. Limping, right? That that it, it's compared to just not even walking straightly or 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 fully or uprightly. Instead, you're you're limping between these two things, and um, this of course is also a little bit reminiscent of Joshua's challenge to Israel: uh, "Choose this day whom you will serve." But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Um, so. Elijah challenges the people like this. They don't answer him initially, and he um, he then proposes the contest. And the contest, he does everything he can to make it as uh, to emphasize the advantage that the prophets of Baal and presumably of Asherah as well. Um, to, to, to emphasize, to give them as much advantage as possible. So there's no way that what is about to happen can be interpreted as anything but an act of God. So number one, he he emphasizes the numerical difference. Uh, I Even I only am left a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And then uh, he tells them, bring two bulls, and he says, and let them choose which one they want. So Um, we're not, I'm not rigging this in any way. In fact, if anyone can rig it, I'm giving them the opportunity. And then he tells them, and here's what we're going to do. We're each going to build an altar. We're each going to put our bolts on the, the, the wood, and we're each going to pray to our gods and the God who answers with fire, which uh, presumably would be lightning is the one who is truly God. You might recall also that Baal is a storm deity, and we saw yesterday how that's um, how how even the famine that's come upon the land, which is owing to no rain, is. An indictment against him, against his impotency, and I mean, frankly, his non existence, right? Because the Lord is the one who truly brings the rain, but Baal is worshiped because of his alleged ability to bring the rain. And so, but all it takes is a word from Yahweh's prophet, and there's no rain at all. And so, here, similarly, uh, the God who brings the rain is the God who casts lightning onto the ground, and so that is. Um, uh, we're playing on Baal's territory is kind of the idea here. And so they do this, they go first, uh, the prophets of Baal do, and uh, it says that they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. Notice it kind of tells you that twice to emphasize that, how how silent Baal is. And then they start limping around the altar that they had made. Um, which can be interpreted as perhaps some kind of ritual dance. But I think it's also interesting to note that that verb limping was also used just a few verses ago in verse 21. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? And here are the prophets of Baal, limping. That is a rare word. It only occurs seven times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and here we have two of them. Uh and then uh, Elijah starts mocking them. And so he's, he starts crying out uh, or telling them, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep or must be awakened. You know, like oh, like he's making excuses for why Baal might not be answering. But the whole thing, of course, is mockery. Uh, it's interesting that the English Standard Version does go with relieving himself uh here for this um it's this is a tricky word it occurs only here in the old testament and it's not doesn't clearly mean that he's uh you know going number one or number two um so it could also mean deep in thought or even journeying um so but you know it's not, not that not that important just wanna clear it's not absolutely certain that that's one of the options that Elijah proposes to them, although it's kind of amusing if it, if it is. Um, and then finally, their their, their attempts to, to get Baal to answer is um, kind of reaches a crescendo. They're crying aloud. They're cutting themselves with swords until until blood is, is gushing out. And um, they begin doing all this stuff at morning um, and by midday, they're they're raving on until the time of the offering of the oblation and there is no voice no one answered no one paid attention um the second time we're told that right at first verse 26 there's no voice no one answered now it's three things three times the silence is repeated no voice no answer no one paid attention and then elijah it's his turn so he calls all the people to him and he doesn't just simply build his own altar he actually goes to the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down uh, this is uh, there's kind of a little bit of background there that we're supposed to pick up on that the 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 per- persecution against the worship of the Lord has been so intense his altars have been thrown down and so he goes oh look there's that altar of Yahweh that you destroyed and he um and he he takes um 12 stones, according to each of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, kind of to emphasize Israel's connection that still exists between them and the Lord. And um, and and also note how in verse 31, when it talks about the 12 sons of Jacob, um, note that it calls them, first of all, the sons of Jacob, and then as opposed to Israel, right? And then it says, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So that seems to be this purposeful callback to Genesis 32, 28, where where Jacob is wrestling with God and receives his new name. And if you recall back then, the meaning there is that Jacob means heel grabber, right? Somebody who's Who's grabbing other people, trying to get ahead uh, through his own scheming and machinations, and struggling just like Israel, just constantly doing that. And here, right, the northern kingdom's struggling with the uh, with the southern kingdom, and they're struggling with Aram uh, Damascus, and and uh, they're struggling internally. They're try they're trying to figure out where to find water now during this famine, and God is challenging them to be. Israel, God strives, God strives on your behalf, and you need to know that and you need to trust that and here this the way that this is that this is just narrated is in a way that seems very clearly to purposely try to remind us of that they are the sons of Jacob, and then it recalls the actual um, event Israel shall be your name and uh, so he 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 uh, builds this altar to the name of the Lord. Um, um, and he, he, he not only builds the altar, but then he digs a trench around it, um, that, uh, would contain so much that it would contain two Sias of seeds. Um, uh, a seah is a very unclear, ambiguous measurement, but it possibly is around seven liters. Uh, but that you get the point, right? He digs a trench around it and, um, He puts the the wood on the altar, cuts the bull in pieces, lays it on the wood, prepares it for the sacrifice, and then he tells them to start filling jars of water, um, four jars of water, and pouring that water out all over the bull. So again, giving them as much, giving these other prophets as much of a lead as possible, as much of an advantage, and now disadvantaging himself as much as possible. And uh, they pour these four jars all over the, the bowl. They, he tells them to do it a second time. They do it a second time. And uh, then he tells them to do it a third time. And, and the trench is all filled with water. The animal is soaked. So, like, even if you were, you know, you might have a hard time burning this thing if you doused it in lighter fluid at this point. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, which is about when the Baal prophets stopped, um, he starts calling out to God, and he's very clear about why he wants God to do this. O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, remember, not Jacob, Israel, challenging you to be truly Israel. Um, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, i.e., not Baal, you, and that I am your servant, Okay, so remember the importance of prophecy, right, in, in this time. Know that the, that what I am speaking is your word. Confirm that I that you are speaking through me to these people, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Um, uh, it's an incredible... Uh, Uh, Prayer that of what Elijah wants the Lord to do and why he wants him to do this. And as soon as he does this, as soon as he prays this, no dancing around the altar, certainly no cutting himself, just this simple prayer. um, Fire falls from heaven and consumes the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust (laughs) and then licks up the water that was in the trench. And all you've got is this burnt cinder. And the people see this, and they fall on their faces and confess, "Yahweh, He is God." Yahweh, He is God. And then Elijah moves, and he says, um, and he tells, he he commands that the prophets of Baal be seized, and they bring them down to the brook and are killed. These prophets um, are killed, and this, of course, is a very extreme act that Elijah becomes a pattern for uh, kind of being a zealot for the Lord. He does say, I've been very jealous for Yahweh of hosts, the same word for zeal there. Um, And this is obviously a prime example of this, and it just emphasizes Um, that sometimes this kind of judgment of God does come into human history. Uh, It is not the normal way of working. It's certainly not something that we should go and do likewise. Um, But uh, it reminds us that the, the wages of sin is death, that what God is doing in this world is extremely important. And derailing that is a very, very serious offense in God's eyes. And I'll just also keep in mind that these prophets of Baal have been, even under even under modern law, uh, would probably be liable to a very large extent. Uh, keep in mind that the whole scenario here is that Jezebel and Ahab have gone and sanctioned the killing of the prophets of Yahweh. Um uh, we've already seen this with the prophets who have to be hidden ca- hidden in caves and um uh, several times in chapter 19 Elijah will complain about how they have killed their prophets so there's a lot of prophet killing going on here on both sides um, but um yeah this is this is an extreme act then um uh at this point Elijah then goes to Ahab and tells him again kind of commanding the king go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound of rushing rain. Um, and so he, Ahab goes up to eat and drink, um, and Elijah go up, goes uh, to Mount Carmel. Again, Ahab doing exactly what the prophet has told him to do. And Elijah starts bowing himself to the ground, and uh, he's got a, one of his servants is there, and his he tells his servant to see what he sees, and uh, he looks a couple times, And uh, the, the seventh time he looks, he sees what he describes as a cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea. So, rain is coming. Yahweh is now sending rain on the earth again so that to turn the hearts of his people back to him. And he says, Go. Up, say to Ahab prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you So this is his way of delivering the good news to Ahab that Yahweh is mercifully um, sending rain despite the the king's um, sin and and his foolishness. And so um, Ahab then goes to Jezreel and uh, which is a very important city at this time and uh, it, we're told that and he's riding in his chariot. And uh, we're told that the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jez- Jezreel. Um, I don't think that in just kind of like as an English reader, right, that kind of sounds like Ahab is racing him and trying to beat him there. But all over the place, we actually find um, kings with individuals, quote, running before them uh, as they um you know, go in their kingly retinue or however you want. You see this with Absalom, 50 men to run before him, 2 Samuel 15, 1. Um, you, you find it again, in 1 Samuel 8, 11, uh, where Samuel is talking about the king taking pe- uh, of your sons, who and he will make them run before his chariots. Uh, we also saw this in 1 Kings one uh, five. Adonijah attempts to become king instead of Solomon, and he gathers men to run before him. That's what's going on there. So, then Ahab, you know, ever the uh, ever the one who wears the pants in the household, uh, not, and he goes and tells his wife what happened, and she is uh, incensed at this. And she says, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make you your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Ahab, totally this passive figure. I mean, it's I guess it's good that he's passive. It means he doesn't want to kill. He's not trying to kill Elijah, but his wife, obviously not having any of this. And uh, so now um, she's going to try to hunt him down, and this causes him to flee. So he flees into the journey, into the wilderness, and immediately he he reaches this kind of what looks like a dark night of the soul, right? You've got this huge spiritual high that's happened, and now he's asking the Lord to to, to leave him alone, that he might die. Um, t- take away my life, Yahweh, I'm no better than my father's. Um, it's hard to not view this as some sort of uh, depression, um, as um, uh, but also perhaps him being overly dramatic. Because as we're about to see, Elijah does things and, you know, it's not absolutely certain, but a lot of commentators start seeing Elijah's actions now as being kind of lackluster and actually not really following through on the types of stuff that he should be doing. Um, so, Um, nevertheless, God is caring for him in the wilderness. An angel touches him and tells him to arise and eat. And just like the Lord has fed, had fed him with ravens, he's feeding him now. Um, and, uh, with providing miraculously a a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Um, and then, um, you know, God does this for Elijah, the ravens, the widow at Sarfat. And, um, and, uh, so, yeah, so... Um, God knows that this is a long journey he needs to eat, so he, he provides for them. And he goes in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, all the way back to Horeb. And we haven't been at Mount Sinai since uh, the people uh, departed from there in the book of Numbers. And, um, and he goes and lodges in a cave um, in, in Horeb by the mountain of God, and Yahweh comes to him and asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you know so it's almost like again there, there's enough like um, gaps to fill in in what's happening here to suggest maybe even that Elijah is isn't totally in the right in having come this way like God is helping him. God's not going to let him starve or anything like that. but what are you doing back here? Are you looking for another covenant because that's that are, are, is that, you you feel that everybody is so against you, um, but the Lord wants you proclaiming His word in Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel, and I know that it's miserable doing that. Um, but this is the covenant that I've given them, and this is what I'm holding them to. That seems to perhaps be the implication here. What are you doing here, Elijah? And this is repeated. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah has this you know um has has a legit complaint right um i've been very jealous for yahweh again that probably encompasses his his killing of those prophets um for the people of israel have forsaken your covenant they've thrown down your altars they've killed your prophets with the sword and i even i only am left and they seek my life to take it away and um and in response to this God tells him to go out very similar to what he told Moses to do uh, when Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord. And um, so he goes out and and Yahweh passes by and it says a great and strong wind tore the mountain, breaking in pieces the rocks before before Yahweh. So it's this incredible physical manifestation, but Yahweh is not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, but it says Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after that fire, very similar to to, to Mount Sinai when the whole people of Israel was there, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And um, and then there was a sound of a low whisper. And a lot, it could also be translated a soft silence, perhaps. Um, Mordecai Kogan in his... Uh, um, commentary, the sound of seer sh- silence, because he wants to bring out the assonance in the Hebrew there. It's a demamadaka, right? It kind of like uh, rolls off the tongue, uh, but it's it's this l- low whisper uh, or and quietness. So rather than the fireworks, these extraordinary, powerful manifestations, the place where God is, is actually where it's quiet. He doesn't need there to be these dramatic extraordinary even calling down fire from heaven right like without me doing that i'm still there and i'm still working um and uh elijah realizes is this is the lord he wraps his face in a cloak he goes out stands at the entrance of the cave and all he gets is once more what are you doing here elijah Elijah then repeats his complaint verbatim about, you know, all the rough stuff he's been through and all the stuff that Ahab and Jezebel have done, and he tells them, and God tells him to do three things, um, and essentially, and this again is another clue that maybe Elijah isn't really doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing here, because he's essentially told that he's going to be replaced, that his minist- time for his ministry is, is over now, and um, and so, he tells him to do three things, uh, basically anointing three uh, uh, individuals. Number one, he's to anoint a new king over Syria. Um, and number two, he's to anoint a new king over Israel. And number three, he's to anoint a new prophet in his place. The king of Syria, will, or Aram, right, we've seen that before, uh, will be Hazael and the king the king of israel will be yehu or jehu and the replacement for him will be elisha and these will be individuals who will um execute god's justice uh they we've seen how god uses the actions even of sinful people elijah is not that elisha is not that uh nor really is elijah um, but certainly Hazael and jehu end up doing some pretty crazy stuff but they are instruments of god's judgment and really i mean kind of all of them against the northern kingdom of israel um hazal will be a lot of trouble for them uh Yehu, of course will be there to um do away with the um the house of ahab the house of omri actually and uh, elijah will be the prophet kind of speaking to the people in the midst of all of this um and yet he gives this final word of hope to elijah i will leave seven thousand in israel all the knees that have not bowed to baal and every mouth that has not kissed him Uh, this is uh it's powerful how paul what paul kind of does with this later on in the book of romans which we're actually not that far from Um, but he sees this as very indicative of of god's choice in in electing um, his own in in bringing people to himself and ensuring that there is always a remnant and now i would probably be remiss um, to not point out that elijah actually doesn't anoint any of these individuals um, he doesn't he doesn't actually go and anoint them and so uh, and the first key you get from this again that elijah is kind of not doing exactly what he should be doing as as a prophet and so is he going to be replaced by a man who was more faithful than him so he finds elisha the exact guy he's supposed to anoint to be his successor elisha is plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and what does he do he does kind of like the bare minimum he casts his cloak upon him right he just throws his own cloak cloak on him and um Elijah is like kind of like ready to go but he wants first to be able to kiss his father and his mother but Elijah in response is kind of like again doing the bare minimum he's he's he doesn't even say all right well when you're done with that come meet me and we're going to go do some stuff no he just says go back for what have I done to you. But then Elisha, super excited about what is happening, what the opportunity that he's being given to serve the Lord, goes and sacrifices the oxen he's plowing with, boils their flesh, gives it to the people, and arises, goes to Elijah and assisted him. Here we have an interesting part of Elisha's characterization. Note note two things where he's he's, um, being kind and compassionate. So his first thing is well, let me go and kiss my father and mother, and then the second thing is to make a sacrifice and to give it to all to the people, um, to to feed the people. So here is Elijah just uh, doing doing the bare as I said the bare minimum of, of what he's been commanded to do, and not even anointing the guy, uh, whereas Elisha is enthusiastically following him, and uh, and 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 also being kind to those who um, who are around him. All right, let's go over to Acts chapter 17, verse 22, uh, through chapter 18, 11. So here is Paul at the Areopagus. He is in Athens. He has been invited to speak to the philosophers there. And what we get here is a good picture of what is often called contextualization. So we've seen Paul uh, speaking to, in synagogues and things like that, but and, and, of course, he's talked to Gentiles before, but here he's talking to a very specific kind of Gentile, and he's bringing the gospel to, to them where they're at. And his approach is very interesting, right? Because you, you don't just say it the same to everyone. Like, I, you're going to share the gospel differently with um, with somebody who maybe has a Jewish background, say, than somebody who's a staunch atheist, Right. And so Paul's approach here is actually very interesting because we uh, we get to actually see a little bit of a sustained speech of his. Now he definitely talked for longer than Luke records him as having talked here. This is definitely an abbreviation of it. Um, these addresses sometimes went on for very long, uh, a very long time in the Areopagus but we're given enough to really see what Paul's approach is in speaking to different types of people. So, uh, first of all, he, I'll note that he does very little, if any mocking of them because <clears throat> he, he certainly could bring up all the things that they get wrong, but instead he kind of emphasizes the things he admires about them. And makes, I don't want to say appeals to flattery or anything like that, but he definitely gives them credit where credit is due. Okay. Um, uh, It's, 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 we might be taken aback. At least some of us might be by how positive Paul is towards them. So I perceive that in every way, you're very religious. Okay. He just as easily could have said, well, you're really worshiping like the gods whom you worship aren't gods at all. And so the thing that you think is religion is just man-made. No, he doesn't do that. He he actually gives them credit where credit is due. You you in every way are very religious. Um I observed these objects of worship all throughout the city, but I also found this altar. So here's something that's particularly deep that he wants to bring out to an unknown god. This idea that they're they acknowledge that there is more than is captured in say, the Roman pantheon and, and, uh, and the gods of, of the Greeks and things like that. And so he, he says, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. So I, th- this one whom you have been looking for, and I see evidence of it here in your zeal and your thoughtfulness, um, I'm here to tell you that this is the one whom you've been looking for. Um, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, it's important, again, to realize, as I mentioned briefly yesterday, that the the individuals that he is speaking to, okay, uh, the groups that are identified here, these are Epicureans and these are Stoics. These are guys whose own philosophy is highly critical of kind of like folk religion throughout, and even official religion throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, This kind of like going into temples, worshiping statues, things like that, right? Uh, No. And so he's he's not criticizing them when he's saying that. He's criticizing culture with them. He's agreeing with their critique of the culture. He's acknowledging the points that they've gotten right. God does not live in temples made by man. And you could see them being like, yeah, yeah, this guy seems to get it. This Jewish guy, I thought they had a temple in Jerusalem, right? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. These points of agreement with them, since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Notice here, you also have the universality of God, that God is not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of everyone. He's your God, too. Um, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Um, so this is not a, simply a national deity I'm talking about here. Probably realizing that that would be one thing that they might be thinking, knowing that he's Jewish. Well, doesn't he? This guy just worship the Jewish God, and isn't the Jewish God just like all these other gods? Uh, you know, petty um, uh, needs to be worshipped in a temple, needs to have statues erected to him, um, uh, and and he's. And he, he's linked to a, a, a trade or, or, or um, a part of nature, or in this case, in the case of Israel, a people group. No, he's, he's, he's agreeing with their critique of religion. And he even interprets their own thinking about these things as something that God wants them to be doing, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Then he goes and he quotes two um, uh, literary works um, of their time. Um, one, it's it's unclear. Early Christian writers attribute "In him we live and move and have our being" to Epimenides, um, uh, who uh, uh, and if if it is him, uh, if if they're correct about this, what they say is that. Uh, they actually say, Epimenides actually says this about Zeus. Okay, and he says, as even as, as some of your own poets have said, and then he quotes Aratus um, of Cilicia. Um, the work is called the Phenomena. Um And uh, this also is said of Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. So here, Paul is able to take these writings that are even directed towards another god and say, these are—these um, can—these things, although, of course, I'm not saying you should, that, that Zeus is the one we should direct these kinds of thoughts to, but these thoughts are genuine thoughts. These insights are genuine insights. And I'm going to take what is, what is—the points of agreement, and I'm going to emphasize those and use those as the hooks for the gospel— and so then he starts making his headway to Christ. Being then God's offspring, we not ought, we ought not to think that the divine being is like God, gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Um, and um, so you could see them nodding their head in agreement, yes, yes. The times of ignorance God overlooked. So now comes his call to them, like he wants a response from them. They need to understand that um okay you've gotten here and you're thinking but you need to go further and it's not okay to just sit around and as Luke told us spend all day just hearing something new you need to actually decide what are you going to do with this god because he's 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 overlooked the time of ignorance in the past But now he commands people everywhere to repent, so a response is required of you, and that response is repentance, it is faith. Because he has fixed a day, and now he brings in um, explicitly Christian ideas, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And for those who are not open, their hearts are not open. Those words, that last part, must have been like sudden, sudden nails screeching on a chalkboard. Um, a man is going, has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. You say, Paul, and he's he's raised him from the dead and given us he's given us evidence of this uh by raising him from the dead notice how the resurrection here is used as an evidence that indeed this is uh this is god working here through jesus um and that's what they can't countenance of course the the um gentile world had no room for the concept of resurrection okay uh you went to the uh when you died you did not come back uh uh, definitely not as a, a physical resurrected body, and they hear about that, and, and some of them were told start mocking Paul because of that, but he's made an impact on at least some of that, and some say, we will hear you again about this, and we even hear that some join him and believe and were given their names, Dion, uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others who are unnamed as well. So then Paul leaves um, Athens and he gets to Corinth and um, also in the, um, in the region of Achaia, which is like modern day Greece. And he, fi- he, he, he finds a Jew there named Aquila along with his wife priscilla now these individuals will become important in paul's ministry they're mentioned in the book of romans they also have more we're going to find them in the city of ephesus later in the book of acts and um, both of them have a very prominent uh, ministry and um, we'll say more uh, as we see their other passages the other passages having to do with them. It's unclear whether they're Christians when Paul encounters them for the first time here or whether they're converted by him. Because notice that he's just, all you're told is he's a Jew and Paul found him. Um, And that they, um, he goes to see them because they are of the same trade. They're, uh, tent makers. You could also perhaps read that as leather workers, right? And this is how Paul works to support himself in these cities. It's 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 interesting that in the in the uh, letters that Paul will write to the Corinthians, he mentions specifically there about how he um, doesn't. Uh, didn't receive financial support from them to do his ministry, but rather supported himself. It's kind of interesting that Luke mentions that here in his narrative of Paul's work at Corinth as well. But yeah, so we're not, we can't be sure whether this couple is a Christian, are Christians initially when Paul meets them, or whether they're converted here. They eventually are. And the reason they're in Corinth is because Claudius has, has, um, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and interestingly a Roman historian named Suetonius tells us about this same thing and he has this mysterious thing that he says there where he says that the reason Claudius expelled them, uh, the, the Jewish people was be, was at the instigation of Crestus which many think might be a, of course, very close to Christos um, Christ um, and that that may have been a um you know a, a misreporting of the actual name by someone who's unfamiliar with with Jesus um, and kind of misunderstanding what he's heard, but yeah, it's interesting that this same thing is is mentioned in a, by a Roman historian and so as usual, he goes uh, straight to the synagogue trying to persuade Jews in and Greek and, and Greeks um, and then uh, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. Um, an interesting little factoid here is that uh, it is at Corinth where First and Second Thessalonians are written. Remember, I mentioned that those are written very close to um, after Paul had founded the church there, um, at, and so indeed they are. Um, and in First Thessalonians three six, he tells them Timothy has come to us from you. And uh, it's also noteworthy that both First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. Written apparently in quick succession from one another. Um, in fact, some people think that first is actually second, and second is actually thir- first. But uh, in both letters, the uh, individuals um, who are named as the ones uh, composing the letter are Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So it's interesting. It's an interesting correspondence you have between the Gospel, uh, between Acts, rather and uh, the letters of Paul there. Um, and uh, so Paul is occupied when they arrive, um, but um, he begins um, to experience opposition. And he, uh, and in fact, he, he shakes out his garments, this symbolic act, of course, of, um, uh, of, of now this decision to turn to the Gentiles. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. I've done what the Lord has called me to do. Your unbelief is not because I have not shared with you, um, uh, but it's your own choice. And from now on, I go to the Gentiles. And so he does that. And, uh, but but that, as Paul says in Romans, that ministry tends to also does have an eye to the Jews, because even though he's turning to the Gentiles, he does say in Romans, my aim is to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So that's kind of what happens here he he goes right next door to the synagogue this guy titius justice um, uh, has a, a home there and sets up shop there so he leaves the synagogue and goes right next door and continues his ministry and eventually the ruler of the synagogue crispus becomes a christian with his entire household and um and as many other corinthians are and are baptized and Uh, Finally, Paul, uh, you know, having ministry which is a bit choppy, right? It's not just uninhibited success, but you do have some encouraging things going on there. He's given encouragement by the Lord in a vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Uh, You know, and, and your task, Paul, is to bring them the gospel, that by hearing those whom I have chosen to be mine um, will turn in faith and repentance. And uh, Paul's ministry um, there in the city of Corinth, we're told, lasts for a year and six months as he continues to teach the word of God among them. Okay, I know that's a little bit of a long episode today. We have Elijah to thank for that. Um, but uh, that's it for today. And as always, I very much look forward to being with you again tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye bye.